0: Welcome to History for the Curious, I'm Mena Reisner and I host the internationally renowned lecturer, dynamic historian and tour guide Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch. Experience our history, confront dilemmas, and reveal the untold stories of 3,000 years of Jewish heritage, from Paris to Cairo, from the Russian Tsar to Maimonides, and from the Sinai revelation to the French Revolution. Join the fastest growing Jewish history podcast in the world by subscribing to this channel and discovering the events that have shaped us into who we are today. Welcome to part four of Yishmael versus Yisrael. So today we'll be looking at various elements of the war again, from a historical perspective, from a spiritual side, from an advocacy side. Rabbi Tetz has kindly joined us again to discuss the tragic situation of the hostages currently held in Gaza. Rabbi Hirsch, our series in Israel, is currently our most listened to yet. It's such a... Horrendously difficult time, and our listeners are keen for you to continue addressing the war. After all, that's what's on everyone's minds all day. So, like we said, there's going to be we're going to cover it from various angles. Rabbi Hesh,
1: so we are six weeks in, and the shock has worn off. We're still davening, we're still angry, sad, but we're no longer in a fog of incomprehension of trauma, even in Yushalayim. We're on edge, obviously, and very pained. And of course, two things arose in the past few weeks to keep that focus there. The anger from the hypocrisy of the so-called academies of learning and from media such as the BBC and the sheer levels of that hypocrisy by these supposedly objective outsiders who created basically blood libels about us, tout court. And then, of course, there is the pain of the hostages, which I want to deal with at greater length, especially because I've now spoken to a number of groups who've been on missions to Israel in the past few weeks, a couple in this country, one in the USA. And I want to share what came across unanimously from all of them, but highlight that everyone in Israel feels that plight of the hostages and is in turn urging us not to forget them, not to abandon them perhaps start with the question that we have been asked by email and that I've been asked personally. How useful is my individual prayer going to be in the grand scheme of things? Especially, as I said, we're six weeks in, and I know that my kavana, my concentration isn't what it was, and I feel guilty about that. I'm, you know, I'm not in tears. And I know this is the long haul. There's another few months of this, six months, who knows? So we are in what I would call phase two, which is why we are revisiting things. And there are two things to note. Firstly, we are united through prayer. We are davening for one thing and one thing only, and it isn't for me personally. It's truly for Am Yisrael. And never in our lifetime have we joined forces for such a period of time all to pray for one thing. You know, we talk of experiencing achdus, unity. This is unique. If we want to understand how powerful it is as a force, even when our prayer is not what it was, uh, you know, in comparison to the 8th of October, then we don't need to look any further than a, a well-known but perhaps misunderstood Gomorrah of hamispalel baad havere, somebody who davens for others, and they themselves need this thing. They get answered first. It's very often misunderstood.
0: Just uh, I'm assuming this is what you're referring to, because it suggests that the easiest way to get what I need is to them for someone else, right, knowing right. that I will get what I want. So it's slightly a uh, slight right. vicious circle.
1: So means being able to focus on someone else the, the meshechochm explains this with regards to Yitzhok last week and the shloh adds that the process of this prayer is middle tover or mitzvah rubber it is a a tremendous input that a person achieves When they pray for others, it's not just an outcome. The the very process of it is enormously elevating. And the Mabit, talking about the outcome, explains, Somebody who prays for others, his intent is not just to get what he needs but because he is by this prayer he acknowledges that only god is able to provide the solution that is the what underlies this concept of when i'm dovening for somebody else who's a thousand miles away there's an awareness of the fact that wherever and whenever it's God, all God, and only God. I heard from one of my rabbinic colleagues a couple of days ago, from Landau, that the use of the particular name of God, Hamokoim, which literally means the place, when we're dealing with the hostages, Hamokoim Yenachim Eschem, is because wherever they are, God exists. And equally, only God knows where each and every one is.
0: So, even if the davening has far less kavana than maybe it should have, there's a certain power because the tvila that we have, we are completely united and we are united in the thought that only God can deal with the issue at hand.
1: Yes, correct. That's the Matthias. But perhaps to focus on where we can go with this, where, how we can somehow elevate that prayer, I want to explain tvila through the use of one particular word, a word that nowadays is highlighted through uh, Tehillim that we say, chapter 130, Mimamakim, it's also in Dovening every day. And that one word is often seemingly redundant. The word is koil, which literally means sound. We say that a Baruch Hu should be, Kashuvos should listen, le koil as opposed to Tachanunay itself. HaKadosh Baruch Hu should hear the sound of my prayer, as opposed to the prayer. And in Shema Koileinu, we say God should hear Koilenu, the koil, the sound of our voice, and accept the est Estfiloseinu. They're two very different requests, it would appear. One is to listen to koil, which isn't prayer, and one is to listen to prayer. And, you know, you find this more obviously in the text, in the Nusach of the Bracha for Shofar and Rosh Hashanah, where the Bracha is Lishmoyah Kol Shofar, to hear the sounds of the Shofar, rather than to hear the Shofar, Lishmoyah Shofar.
0: Right, and you can't hear Shofar without hearing Kol Shofar. Exactly. So So what does Kol mean?
1: So what is Kol? And most famously, in last week's Sedra, we are told that our strength is Hakol Kol Yaakov. It's all in this word. And perhaps to add one last point, there are two ways to spell the word koil. With and without of. And in Hakol Kol Yaakov, the first one is without of the second one is with, and it's not an accident. So at its basic level, Tfila. All tefillah is real because of koel. We see this in Parsha's va- um, Vayera, when Avram is asked by his wife, Sarah, to expel Hagar, but he's unsure how to react. And God instructs him, kol elecho, Sarah, whatever Sarah says, sh'ma b'koela. It doesn't say, listen to her, sh'ma elecho, but it says, listen to the sounds of what she says. As Rashi explains, the moral expands upon, Sarah was on a higher level than Avram. So what he is being told is, even if you don't understand what she is saying, the why, listen to the instruction itself, the koil. And similarly, in the silent prayer, the bracha requests that Hashem sh- hears koilenu, the sound of the words we are asking that god responds at some level to what we say even if it is recited without really understanding the true essence and depth and we conclude that bracha every day by saying Ki kol peh. you listen to every prayer that is said end of when a person gets up and reads the words you listen now obviously there is a higher element because koel is made of two layers, koel with above and koel without. What's called koel elioin and koel Tachtoin, the higher realm and the lower manifestation. It's a concept you find everywhere. There's a Zohar and V'yagash, there's a Rambifano with regards to Shofar. But the obvious place to see it is at Matan Torah, the higher level. Because we talk about koel with regards to the giving of Torah at Mount Sinai. And we assume it's the koel, the sound of the shofar. But in V'eschanon, the Torah tells us, koel devorim atem shremim. You heard the sound of Hashem's words, zulosi koel. That was the only sound that you heard. And that koel was so powerful that the Jews saw it. Roim es They saw koel. Because at its highest level, tefillah is... Hakol Koil Yaakov, meaning the concept of Yaakov taking this Koil Elion, this absolute manifestation of God that was apparent at Mount Sinai, and linking it to a Kol Tachtin in this world. And therefore the Maral refers to Koil without the Vov as potential, and Koil with the Vov as the actualization. Which also explains, by the way, an idea in the Haftarah for the second day of Rosh Hashanah. Famously, we know about Rochel who weeps over her children. Koel barom nishma, Rochel Mavako She weeps over her children. Ki enenu, it should have said ki enom. They are not there. Would you mean it isn't there? Ki enenu means the vov isn't isn't there. Enenu can be read as ein vov. That vov is lacking. And therefore, her children are being taken into exile. And that means that Gula comes by connecting Ko'il Tahto into Ko'il Elyon. As uh, Ramesh Shapirozat Sal put it, there will be, at the end of time, Zulosi Ko'il, just koel It's a koel that, that precedes words, which came into the world before there were words. And on Rosh Hashanah, when we make this blessing, we can hear Shafar, which means we can hear the tekiah, the trua, and then we can hear koel Shafar, the call of that shoifar. So at a basic level, all tefillah, as we said, is koel, especially tefillah, which is united, ba'achdus ba'adchaveri. But there is a higher level that we need to strive for. And, you know, one way to refer to it, perhaps, is that at its lower level, koel is words without meaning. At its highest level, ko'il is meaning beyond words.
0: So tefillah, although some people would understand it as a communication and request, but you're sort of describing that Hashem made a mechanism that tefillah in itself is a tool, is a weapon that we, a gift that he gave us, even without, without the communication element, without the full understanding possibly, without...
1: Even the fact that we engage in tefillah? is a very real activity. And of course, the highest aspirations and the higher aspirations are to put Kavana and meaning and intent and a, a, a full uh, understanding into what we're doing. Yes. Yeah. Okay. I would now like to move away from this. We'll come back at the very end, hopefully, and come to the concept of hostages as well, but deal with a different facet of this war, advocacy.
0: So you're talking about the uh, PR war that's going on for
1: Israel. Absolutely. So people want to help. You know, LinkedIn, for instance, has exploded with Jews who have never posted anything which is non-business related and have now just thrown caution to the winds because they're fed up. And anti-Semitism globally has risen. But it's critical to understand the battlefield. Where can we be effective as individuals? I've spent a lot of the last seven days watching and reading what the other side has to say, the other point of view. And it would be apposite to show where it is mistaken or deliberately misleading. But to whom? How? So broadly speaking, there are four groups there are the blind haters they actively promote and seek a world without jews that that's you know hamas and jihad supporters and iran and the united nations human rights council who as we mentioned for the past 40 years has unceasingly attacked israel with more condemnations than every other country in the world combined there is the the international red cross if you see my LinkedIn post, you will understand that it's probably red because it's stained with all the blood of the Jews during the Holocaust who were repeatedly abandoned by this so-called humanitarian organization and whose behavior today is simply a continuation of this hypocritical behavior. And uh, the irony is that the Human Rights Council and the Red Cross building are next door each other in Geneva. I've been there, which makes it much easier to take them both out at the end of days. You have Amnesty International who lie repeatedly in their reports about Israel, about it being an apartheid state. Then you have individuals like the president of South Africa, Greta Thunberg. You have a special rapporteur, Francesca Albanese, who is a full-blooded anti-Semite, who twists the definition of genocide, and nothing is beneath these individuals, nothing at all. Now, not only are you never going to turn these people to the truth, there is no point in correcting them. They will tell you to your face that the atrocities of the 7th of October never occurred. So, you know, what type of conversation are you going to have with them? Surely not one way where you bring the facts. That's irrelevant. But we all know that. The next step is the what I would call career ideologues. Those who would potentially be untroubled by a world in which there were no Jews, but they don't actively contribute towards the eradication of Israel or Jews or promoting actively that ideology, but they are unfriendly. Their perspective is based on fixed views, irrespective of what the real facts on the ground indicate. You know, you have the Secretary General of the United Nations or the, I don't know, the Russian and Chinese delegates at the Security Council level. Unfortunately, there are Jews in this category, too. You have extreme left-wing Jews who have been so brainwashed that they have a pretzel vision and they protest for Palestine and not Israel. And all those pulling down posters of kidnapped children. They're sick people. And by that, I also mean that they're ill. They have a psychological inability to see good and bad. It's a proper disability. They might look like any one of us, but they are severely damaged people. Now, included in this category of Jews with knowledge and status, but possessing not an ounce of courage or moral fiber, people like uh, Professor Noah Feldman at Harvard University, who is the most senior Jewish academic in Harvard and has refused to say anything, never mind anything pro-Israel, but even to defend the Jewish students on his campus. If we contrast him to his previous incumbent there, who was Alan Dershowitz, whose recent attack on Obama and his apology for having befriended him in the first place is notable. Not so the so-called Professor Noah Feldman, who, unbelievably, is the founding director of a program on Jewish and Israeli law at Harvard, And according to his website, his law studies have particular emphasis on power and ethics. So somebody obviously must have forgotten to send him the memo as to what real ethics are. Although the truth is they did send him the memo. It came from the Jewish students at Harvard, his non-Jewish colleagues, uh, Jewish friends, including religious ones. And he looked away. One wonders how he would have reacted had he been in Harvard during the Holocaust. And he has posted on LinkedIn recently, but not about Israel or about Harvard or in their actions or about anti-Semitism. No, nope, he is far too wrapped up presumably gazing his own navel. So all these groups and people, once again, are too invested to be turned by us. They are blinded by environment, by selfish concerns such as tenure or money or fame.
0: Although closely linked to the first group because one has to be blinded by hatred as well to be able to like you said to pull down images of the hostages you
1: so, in other words there are gradations in here yeah. there there are those who simply are doing it because they want their position or they want to be in an environment where they're accepted yeah now we get to the general public the neutral majority these people who are personally uninvolved, unaffected, and generally live at a distance from the point of conflict. So their information and knowledge comes from what they hear and see. The media forms their opinions. They are perfect candidates, in theory, for us to bombard with the truth. They know as much about Israel as, perhaps, you know about China and Tibet. And they care as much. Do you have strong opinions on that matter, or on, I don't know, Sudan, North Korea? And they do not have the expertise or the knowledge or the interest to take a deep dive into the facts and start, you know, removing lies from truth. Now, these people, for them, a persuasive argument could strike a chord, which is great, but probably only until they hear another persuasive argument, this time from the other side. And you can't reach out to them to counter-argue after that because they're not in your living room or workplace. They will form their opinions regardless of your existence, and they are the vast majority of people in the Western world. And the optics of this war work completely against us. The Gazans live in refugee camps with no land of their own and no money, and they're being bombed into non-existence. And therefore, I don't think that a reasoned argument by Douglas Murray is going to convince the majority of the Western world to change their views, adapt a little, but not change. Now, you can say that, I don't know, British people who are readers of the Times newspaper in this country, or let's say who are over 50, are more likely to be pro-Israel than those who are under 30 because of the, the, the value system or the lack of value system in the general education system today and because of the messaging that goes out to the youth in Western society. But we are unable to communicate directly one-on-one with them anyway.
0: So are you saying that it's really pointless to get involved in this online PR battle?
1: So, the opinion of this mass is a battlefield where, on the one hand, I would say we cannot hope to win the war, but we can't afford to lose it. And particularly on the social media front, uh, we are outnumbered five to one, We need still to be there. But the we is the professionals, the people who know their facts. There needs to be a voice of truth, of sanity, um, so that people can access it. But we need to understand what we are trying to achieve. What is the landscape? If truth and facts were all you needed, then in the last 20 years, we should have convinced every non-Jew in the West of the righteousness of our argument that's without factoring in that there is a latent level of anti-Semitism which can be touched. But just think about the imagery. It's overwhelming. Look at it as an outsider, where emotive pictures play a real role. Now, the professionals who are working on our behalf, they need our support and our thanks, but not our input, because we have a lack of knowledge. We would be stymied by real questions. We argue, and and I spoke about this a few weeks ago, about the fact that Israel is not an apartheid state because Israeli Arabs have the right to vote. They're members of Knesset, judges, uh, you know, head of banks. Yes, in Israel. But there are two million people in Gaza who have no airport, no seaport. So you are imprisoning them and giving them colonization. How do we answer that? There are answers, but how do we answer that? Or, you know, there was an article in The Guardian in 2009 about Israelis harvesting organs from Palestinians. How do you answer that? Or if you're told, you know, you're a racist and you don't quite know what is the definition of being racist, so that you could shut the argument down immediately. I'll share a personal account with you, which happened this week. On Sunday, for the first time, I engaged in a LinkedIn discussion with a pro-Palestinian post. Not directly, obviously, because there's just no point in talking to the person who put that post on, but with a comment that was made by somebody who seemed to be normal and reason an American citizen. I sympathized with her point of view. I explained. And then I gave her new information, in facts. And it went backwards and forwards, you know, probably, I don't know, six replies in all. And then eventually, she just goes back to her original point. Meaning, eventually, when she can't out-argue the facts, she just ignores the facts, because she is uninterested in anything that I have to say. So I left, and I, I wrote my last comment in one word, I wrote, nebuch, <laughs> because there were a couple of Jews following the, the post as well.
0: I mean, but yeah, what you're describing is showing when lies are lies, or sheker is sheker. that would seem convincing.
1: But think of the numbers in the conflict. Think of the fact that they're living in a prison, they're poor, there are hundreds of thousands of them who've been displaced, tens of thousands have been injured, and they're being attacked by tanks and planes. Now, of course, the general outsider will condemn the horrors of the 7th of October and see the initial response by Israel as being understandable. But they want a ceasefire. They see it currently as unjustifiable. If you are uninvolved in the urgency and the drama, it's no different to any other global conflict. You watch the news and, I don't know, you tune into EastEnders on Netflix. It doesn't hold your attention. And you don't understand the mindset of both sides. And it's not important to you.
0: Yeah, I know it just rings true to any discussions I've had with anyone who would seem more objective, is just torn between the, of course, everyone knows that the atrocities that MS committed on the 7th of October are horrible, and yet they're just so much imagery of the poor Gazans, and they just have no way of, of...
1: Right. So I will get to the people that you are talking to. Here I'm talking about the audience that you can't communicate to directly. Yeah. Now, everyone's probably watched this Egyptian comedian, right? It's had <laughs> yes. over 20 million views when he talks about the situation. So his first interview, it's 20 minutes long, and he has one devastating argument in there. And the reason it's devastating is it seems to conform to the picture that I more or less have in my mind before I watch the clip. He said, you're telling me that if you take Hamas out of the picture, that Gaza will be stable. Yes. Well, let me show you a place where there is no Hamas and it's still unstable. It's called the West Bank. Why are Palestinians being killed there now? We know the answers, but the answers are lengthy. So you've lost that argument. Just uh, to, in case the
0: listeners want to know, the Egyptian comedian is called Bassam Youssef, and he was interviewed by Piers Morgan. So I find that very dangerous, because Piers Morgan, as an example, is trying to show both sides of the argument. And if a comedian like that, who are very good at asking these sorts of questions in a very contrived form, if you to ask a question like that, it's called the West Bank, why are Palestinians not being killed there? with no Hamas, and Pierce doesn't have an immediate response, then 20 million viewers are left suddenly, oh, he's got a point, and Pierce was more ignorant of the facts. Because
1: nobody besides for the professionals who are advocating for Israel has all these facts. I have learnt more in the last four weeks about the conflict and the, the questions and answers to it than I have in the last decade. And how much more so for somebody who, at the end of the day, is an outsider. And I must say, I have got ultimate respect for Douglas Murray and Natasha Hausdorff and Mark Regev and the Israeli government spokespeople who have a soul-destroying job because they will always be outnumbered in the public arena, especially on social media.
0: Yeah, it's just a battle of numbers.
1: Well, it's more than that. It's because in people's minds, the pictures work against us. We are the Goliath and they are the David. However much the beginning of the argument seems to be in our favour.
0: So should we be at the United Nations or challenging the international courts? We
1: We have to be. We have to show we're not afraid. We have to show we have answers. We cannot allow complete silence. We have to know the goals. The professionals have to do what they do because it's important that there is a narrative out there. But it's not a narrative that any of us can engage in or, in fact, as non-professionals, should engage in.
0: So it's fortunate that America has been where it is in all this.
1: Yes, especially the, the, the president of the United States. But why has he done it? I don't know. Maybe it's because it's... The election year. Maybe because he does understand what's going on. Maybe because he's worried about stability in the Middle East. Maybe because he hates Arabs. I don't know. But it isn't because he watched TV. I remember attending what must have been, I guess, one of the coolest events in my life in a villa just outside Geneva, about 10 minutes drive from Geneva. We got there early, and then uh, six black Mercedes pulled up in the driveway. I mean, it was a driveway that could have accommodated 16. And the ex-head of the Mossad gets out of one of the cars. He'd traveled into Switzerland under a passport, which was not in his own name. I met him a few times after that. He took me around the north of Israel to a place where there were tank battles during the 73 Yom Kippur War. And, of course, while he was in the room, we weren't allowed to record what he said. And what he did is he went through every single country in the region, Arab and otherwise, and spoke about what the country really believes. And that's where you get an insight into government thinking, not through the media, not through press conferences.
0: Wow. And how did you end up meeting the ex-head of the Mossad for
1: For another another time? (laughs) For some other time, yes.
0: So to sort of bring this together, is advocacy a losing battle?
1: No, absolutely not, because we now come to the fourth group. And the good news is we have a very real target audience, and it's a critical one. It's your non-Jewish colleagues, your friends, and fellow Jews. They are the ones who we can most convince and who are the first line of defense and who potentially go on to convince others. They are the people for whom our main effort needs to be directed. And the basic definition of these people are those who, when given information, will come back to us, to cross-check, all will engage with us in a question and answer, in dialogue, if they hear the opposite or if they assume they know the opposite. They could be non-Jewish colleagues at work, which, uh, by the way, nowadays often includes religious Christians. I mean, they're concerned for a variety of reasons and at varying levels. They are disappointed, let's say, in America by the failure of American society to teach any type of clear morals about family, about religion, about right and wrong. And if they are turned even slightly, they make our work environment much more positive. Jews don't want to feel that they are in a hostile environment. And everyone linked to me personally who is given facts helps create that positivity. But above all, our target is the, I don't know, 80% of Jews who know little about Israel. And I include people who read a pro-Israel newspaper every week. As I mentioned, most people have learned more about this conflict now than we have in the past decades. We need to know and teach what Jews stand for, what our history is, what we've been through, what connects every Jew. I mean, we do have one sort of unique Jewish problem, and that is we don't have a coordinated strategy to do Hasbara. Jews are great at doing things and, and at being there. We want to help, but we want to help now. We need much more coordination in Hasbara. There are a dozen websites out there, and most of what they have duplicates what the other eleven have. And each has something unique, but you need to find it, and it's a lot of energy that should be streamlined.
0: Like you said, it's important to get the factual elements across, rather than there's a lot of emotive, very emotional discussions happening, and everyone's extremely passionate, but factual, I think the target audience that you're describing, that are objective or slightly ignorant, It's the facts that could speak to them most.
1: Yes, but I would say even the emotive arguments, when you hear from the family of somebody who is kidnapped, they need to hear the very real pain. So there is something beyond that as well. I guess what you're referring to is the emotive of sort of shouting at one another. Yes, that we've all seen. gesticulating yeah fine that that doesn't get anyone anywhere but uh, the emotive side which conveys the depth of pain that has a very real place
0: so you mentioned the hostages where do they fit into all of
1: this okay so israel has dealt with hostages in the past everyone knows about entebbe but for instance the 1970s had a wave of hostages and you know israel made decisions how to deal with it and presumably formulating a strategy now.
0: So we thought it'd be worth spending a few minutes understanding the halachic approach to redeeming the hostages. So we invited Rabbi Tetz once again to share with us some ideas and perspective from a halachic standpoint, which we will go to now. And afterwards, we'll come back to you, Rabbi Hirsch, to finish off this episode. Thank you. Rabbi Tetz, thank you very much again for joining us in our studio. We have now heard what Rabbi Hirsch has to say and we have asked you to come and talk about the practical and halachic perspectives on the hostage crisis that is currently ongoing in Israel.
2: Sure, happy to say a few words about it. First of all, thank you Rabbi Reisner for another opportunity to work together. It's our honor. Let me begin at the end, so we don't have any, uh, you know, tension and anticipation as we go, and that is that what we should be doing practically or rather what the Israeli government and army should be doing practically is really beyond our capacity to, to say. And the reason is that these situations, these delicate situations, depend on this particular strategic issues that apply at any one time. So we'll talk about the principles, but the very practical specifics about what should be done on the ground right now is really beyond our ability to say, as I hope I'll make plain as we go. So the main source of this, what we call the sugya, this area, is a section in the Talmud, in, in Gitin, as it happens, on page 45. And there there's a Mishnah. And the Mishnah says, I'll read you the words, We don't redeem captives for more than they're worth. Now, the concept of worth here needs obviously to be explained, but I'm, I'm going to take it in general for our purpose of our discussion. That means for an unreasonable or exorbitant amount. The amount might be, as is being discussed in the Mishnah, their financial. But it can be more broadly construed to be for any conceptions. It might be for releasing other prisoners and things like that. And then the Mishnah, interesting statement, says, which we would translate roughly in English as for the public good. For the public good. And then it goes on to an even more fascinating comment. And the Mishnah says, we don't necessarily release captives who are in captivity, even if we could under certain circumstances, again because of tikkun olam, again public good, and Rabban Shimon Gamaliel says because of the concern for the remaining captives. Now let's explain a little bit about what this means. The first point is when the Mishnah says that we don't redeem captives in an unreserved fashion for the public good, that the Gemara itself debates what this means. Does it mean the public good, namely that if we pay exorbitant price for captives, we will then impoverish the community? After all, the captors would say, we know that you Jews value life above all else, and since we have one or two or ten or two hundred of your captives, we demand a ridiculous and exorbitant price. And particularly when you look at times in Jewish history where means might have been limited, picture some situations in the Middle Ages, for example, where communities might have had extremely limited resources, they were overtaxed and pressured in many ways. This might mean that if we redeem them for an exorbitant price, we impoverish the community. Now, let me point out that impoverishing a community is a life and death question. That means if a community has no resources to pay for its own medical needs and other life-saving needs and even relatively standard needs, you know, there's a famous section in the Talmud in the Dorim which says that if two cities, quite an amazing piece actually, two cities are located on a city, on on a river, one upstream and one downstream, there's only enough water in the river that if the upstream people drink, enough water will remain for the downstream people to drink as well. However, if the upstream people drink and wash, there'll be no water left for the downstream people at all, and they'll die of thirst. Now, that would seem like a no-brainer when you ask the question about people in the upstream city, are they constrained to drink only and leave enough water for their compatriots downstream, or may they drink and wash? Absolutely, incredibly, there's an opinion, and many of our later decisors follow this opinion, that the upstream people, in fact, drink and wash. Now, that is astounding. That means that they use all the water, not only for drinking, for washing as well. And yet the Gomorrah explains that if they don't wash, again, there are many interpretations of this and many nuances, but I'll give one of them. Many explain that if they don't wash, there may be an outbreak of hygiene-related epidemic among them. Now, that may not kill them as soon as the thirst will, but it'll kill them just as surely a few days later or a week later. Now, you see from this, very interestingly, that when it comes to a community, ability to maintain normal features, for example, hygiene, Although they're not as hardcore and immediate as dying at first, but they're real. This is only one example and there are many others. So you see that impoverishing a community and reducing the community's resources is a very material thing. So let's come back to our Mishnah. We don't redeem captives for an exorbitant amount, if that would amount to impoverishing community to dangerous levels. The second opinion is completely different. The second opinion is nothing to do with price. The problem is that if we redeem captors for an exorbitant price, we motivate the terrorists to go and capture more people, to negotiate higher prices in the future. And there were times in Jewish history where this was big business, where terrorists would uh, capture Jews. There was no defense. There was no police force. There was no Jewish life was relatively worthless. And the only worth it had was the money to be able to pay. And therefore, you would motivate captors to go and capture other people and therefore endanger lives down the line. Now, you may ask, what's the difference between these two opinions? In either case, we we would not pay an exorbitant price. And the difference is very clear. In the first case, if you're talking about impoverishing a community, what about an individual who has personal resources? What about a wealthy family? And they wish to redeem a captive in their family You're not impoverishing the community. You're simply costing one family a lot of money. So if you take that opinion, then you'd say that would be fine. But if you take the second opinion, meaning that we're concerned that others will be captured later, then even if you have private means, we wouldn't allow we would not allow you to redeem someone in your own family for an exorbitant amount because the fear is they'd capture other people later and endanger other people's lives. So these are the two opinions. And of course that the, the Talmud leaves this relatively unresolved, which means that we reckon that both of these are real. In other words, if a community would be seriously damaged by this attempt to redeem, or if the community would be threatened by the fear of others being captured later, this would also be a valid motivation. So we have a
0: theory in the Talmud that we use Suffolk against Vardai. So we have a possible, potentially worse outcome that could happen, but we have a definite hostage situation now. Why don't we value the definite over the potential possibility of more?
2: Indeed, that is a wonderful question, and that may well be the reason that we regard this mission as something novel. In other words, since we would normally value the immediate over the future, this mission should be unnecessary to say because you're dealing with a crisis now. Evidently, the circumstances of this mission are where it is relatively guaranteed that they will take others in the future. First of all, if they spend an exorbitant amount now, we're talking about impoverishing the community right now. And if you stack against that, the possibility of others being captured later, we must be considering a situation where it's almost certain. In other words, there's no better business for these terrorists than they're undertaking No bigger incentive. Absolutely, and therefore, under those circumstances, the correct response to your point is not all doubts are equal okay the, true we're dealing with an extant situation now but if it's virtually guaranteed that we'll have a worse situation later and i must say in practical terms this has always been an israeli consideration you know when Gilad shalit was was captured or various other examples you can give the tension has always been on the one hand if we redeem them and we've prepared to give up a thousand terrorists for one for one soldier who knows what they'll do in the future who knows whom they'll capture on the other hand if we leave him in captivity a very weighty consideration is that soldiers need to know that everything will be done to redeem them if they go into battle. Otherwise, they may not be motivated to risk their lives in battle if they feel that we won't do everything. This is a very, very tough.
0: Right. And when when we discuss possible versus certainty, all the terrorists generally that were in prison that were released, for example, in the Shalit exchange, had blood on their hands. That is definite. And, as well.
2: and and unfortunately, we see that blood will be on the hands in the future as well. There's a second part of the mission I should also mention, very relevant to our considerations at the present time, and that is the second part of the mission that debates whether we should in fact redeem captives right now. For example, let's say you're in a captive situation, and you could help a captive actually slip away and escape. We need caution in that as well, says the mission why. Two opinions here. The concept is, if we help a captive escape, and others are left behind in captivity, will they perhaps torture those who are left behind in their anger at one having escaped? Or, as a warning to those who remain, don't attempt to escape. So we have been endangering and causing torture to those who remain by aiding one in escaping. There's another opinion, which is it's not those who are present now who may be tortured, but in the future, when they come and capture people again, instead of treating them in a more humane fashion, they may chain them with chains, and who knows what they may do to them, because in the past, someone escaped. And then, of course, the Talmud gives the obvious distinction. This would not apply if there's only one captive. If you're dealing with terrorists holding only one captive, well, there's no one left to torture. But of course, if you say it's not the problem of those who remain behind, but those they'll capture next week, then of course, this consideration would apply. So you see what the Talmud is debating here, the Mishnah and the Gemara. What you see it's debating here is the strategic problem, the extreme tension between wishing to release people at this time and endangering a community or indeed endangering captives who may be who may be taken later and this is a very very difficult challenge and the bottom line as i began by saying is probably that you need full knowledge of all the strategic the assessed strategic variables at any one time only the soldiers on the ground the army on the ground or the community in the, the particular situation can really make that call
0: well thank you so much Robert Tats appreciate you giving us a bit of clarity, although I suppose the clarity is, like you said, it just adds to the confusion because there's no right or wrong. Does this apply? Because I believe we've spoken in the past, or you've mentioned in the past, that it's not only to human beings, these fascinating concepts of priorities and when we release. Am I right in saying that there's potentially Torah elements
2: or Seamus? Indeed, Rabbi Azna, I know what's in your mind, and it's the next missionary in this Gemara, indeed. And there the Talmud goes on to say, that not only with humans, but even if... Uh, by the way, I should just point out there is a very important debate in the previous discussion. Are the captives we're dealing with, are their lives threatened? Or is it only they being held for ransom? And that makes an enormous difference. There are some commentaries who say, it's very important to note this, that this whole debate about redeeming captives is only where their lives are not in danger. But of course, if their lives are in danger, then we do exactly what you pointed out. We have lives in danger. and I will do anything to release them. The Ramban points out that all captive situations are potentially threat to life. And therefore, we must have been talking about threat to life in the first place. So all these feed into our discussion. When he says potential threat to life, that would mean even in a cushy
0: jail cell? In other words, threat to life is something mental or really, or back in the day, everything was a...
2: Well, we're talking about a ransom type situation. We're not talking about a legal legal regime. Pirates and the like. Yes, we're talking about pirates and and, uh, definitely danger indeed. Yes, your uh, reference to Severe Torah... Indeed, the Mishnah goes on to say that if you redeem holy writings, parts of Sefer Torah or part of our holy books, for example, you might just stimulate the business in stealing more. I'll tell you an interesting incident that occurred to me once some years ago, many years ago. I was traveling in southern Spain with some friends, and we stopped in a little town called Toro Malinos, and I saw an antique shop. And I went to look in the antique shop, and I found a piece of a Sefer Torah ripped out, parchment of a Torah scroll, on sale as an antique. And I asked the fellow running the store how much he wanted. My thought was, of course, to take it and dispose of it correctly, bury it or Mm. treat it with the correct respect. He gave me a figure which seemed high to me. And so I, I did not buy it. I walked out of the shop and I went looking for the Jewish community. There was a small Jewish community in the place at the time, and I found the rabbi. It was a young Tunisian rabbi in his 20s. And I told him, and he said, don't touch it. If you buy it at that price, they're going to rip out more from the same North African synagogues where they got that piece from. And this is a constant business, constant problem. And therefore, I was forced to leave it behind. Indeed, the same consideration, obviously, much less weighty than human lives, but running along the same lines. So let's just sum up and say that we have an extremely difficult life and death situation when it comes to terrorists. We have many, many concerns and problems. One is, again, negotiating what price are we prepared to pay? Obviously, we're prepared to pay any price to save our captives and their lives. But if that's going to endanger more in the future, that needs to be taken into consideration as well. And again, there are opinions that that should not be taken into consideration if you're dealing with life and death, not simply. And furthermore, even with a military operation or an opportunity to sneak someone out of captivity, what consequences will that have for those who remain? This might make a strategic difference rather than release one or two it may be necessary militarily to plan to release everyone together because of some of the considerations that we've said. So bottom line is, the Talmud makes us clearly cognizant of the fact that it isn't only the immediate saving of life. Of course, we have to prioritize that, but we also have the broader considerations of a Jewish community's life and, unfortunately, the ongoing problem of further captives who may be taken later.
0: And just um, one further note on, there's been many stories of prisoner swaps even for bodies for mesim they've already passed away so obviously it's a major deal to give someone a proper jewish burial on the other hand i'm guessing there's incentive
2: issues there as well indeed indeed so we'll again go to great lengths to give a jewish body a correct burial and ensure that the body's not desecrated but again when you're stacking up life you know a threat to life against that that would be secondary
0: rabbi Tatz, thank you so much for your halachic insights Coming back to you, Rabbi Hirsch, can you speak about the hostage crisis, but specifically from a historical perspective?
1: First of all, thank you, Rabbi Tetz. So we've spoken about advocacy for those who want to be involved, but our main responsibility is spiritual. And therefore, even though I am going to talk about an historical hostage crisis, but the reason I am choosing it is because of the, the spiritual idea that emerges from it, where a well-known Talmud Hocham was part of a particular hostage crisis, and he shared his insights into Yishmael. On September the sixth, nineteen seventy, Rivutshak Hutner, his daughter, and his son-in-law, Benjamin David, were on a flight from Eretz Israel to New York, which was hijacked by Palestinian terrorists. And the hijackers actually brought three planes together into Jordan. They freed the non-Jewish passengers and held the Jewish passengers hostages for weeks. In America, there was talk about raising money to ransom Rivutner. Interestingly, Rav Yaakov ruled against it. He said there is halachic basis for paying an exorbitant sum to save a great Torah leader, but only during peacetime. And Israel's ongoing struggle constitutes war and therefore the delivery of ransom money to the enemy would strengthen their position.
0: They were at war in 1970?
1: No, but he said that the 1948 War of Independence never ended. The Arabs' goal was to destroy the State of Israel, drive the Jews into the sea, wipe them all out, and that had never been renounced. And as a result, none of the Arab countries at that time recognized the existence of a place called Israel. So we are constantly at war, really. That's what he held at the time, yes, because there were no peace agreements. And now Rav Moshe Feinstein, interestingly, even though he was very, very close with Rav Yaakov, he disagreed. And he sent a halachic statement to the government of Israel, telling its leaders to comply with the demands of the terrorists. In the end, the reason they were released is because of the planes hijacked. One went wrong and the terrorists involved were killed and some were captured. And the Palestinians wanted these captured terrorists backed. But either way, Rav Huttner said, every day these terrorists would bring Arabs to see the hostages. And he had an insight into these nomadic Arab people. He says, whereas Asov is given rule, Malchus, and an area from which their rule would exist, Har Esauv, Yishmael is told, Yirash they will not have an inheritance. And that's why they look towards Eretz Yisrael. As we said last time, Asov's dispute with Yaakov isn't over land. It's over the, the brachas, the blessings that his father Yitzhok gave in last week's Sedra, because Yitzchok made it clear that only one side can have them, Asov or Yaakov. Whereas the brachas that Yishmal has are not contradictory to ours, because the fight isn't over wealth, which is good and bad. Because on the one hand, it means that this can resolve itself positively even if we don't see it now. In fact, the Torah tells us clearly that Yishmael did tshuva. He gave honor to Yitzhak later on in life. So it doesn't have to be war because we know, as the Ramban tells us, the actions of our ancestors in the Torah are written there to give insight into what the future holds. Now, we can't map the exact approach. We don't know how it's going to unfold, but we do know and we see it that an alternative exists which is non-belligerent because it's in the Torah. And interestingly, when Rav Huttner was released, so a while later he was asked to sit on a Bezdin as a Dayan for a communal matter, and he refused because he had always refused doing this for many years, and he was told by one of the Rabonim, for what purpose do you think that the Jewish people, he said it in Yiddish, stubbornly prayed for you, and why do you think you were redeemed if not to help? The clull. Well, so yeah. That was the various messages that came out of this.
0: So there is a path which is peaceful.
1: It exists, but we need to merit it through our actions. I mean, think even in, in modern day terms of the contrast between the Yom Kippur War in 73 and the peace deal in 77, which was carried out by the same people, which we'll, we'll come back to next time. So is there the concept in a spiritual World of there being Aesov living with Yitzhak, with Yaakov, yes. But I, I want to end with a couple of important insights. Firstly, to know how far-reaching small actions can be. Last week, a friend of mine here in northwest London hosted the brother of a kidnapped soldier. The kidnapped soldier is called Uri ben Einav. And as this boy came out of the underground into Golders Green Station, he sees a wall with posters of the kidnapped on, the pictures. The top left one was his brother. And he cried. He didn't know people had taken his brother's fate into account. In Eretz Israel, they don't necessarily know that we are aware. But critically, what can we do as individuals not to abandon the hostages? So I heard a talk last week from the father of one of the hostages who spoke in Yeshiva Shalavim. He started by saying, no Jew lives for themselves in this world. Now, in Eretz Yisrael, that's being felt across the country. Religious, irreligious, they're feeling much more linked to each other. In Hutzlar, it's in the diaspora. It's perhaps being felt by people, by Jews who are increasingly isolated, you know, in society and at work. So they naturally feel more Jewish and more altered as Jews. But he said... That beyond this feeling, there is an achdus being created through prayer, through tefillah, and through the understanding, almost the conviction of connecting to fellow Jews. And it is the first real step we are making towards a proper gu'ula. Rather than simply believing in Gu'ah, you know, rather than simply understanding it, we are experiencing it. In this sense as we say in Aleinu, V'yodata hayoyim el V'yodata, it's important to have it as a bedrock of faith of emuna. but el means to feel it and then he added he added something very powerful because he was asked how does a father go through this every morning how do you wake up and he said with shutfas, with partnerships he said, we, the families, have strength to go on, not knowing where our family members are, only because of your input, your chizuk, your tfilus, because of our focus on this. And he said, you know, he's on a WhatsApp group with all the families who have a, 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 somebody kidnapped. And most of them, he said, are silent. He and some of the others are trying to infuse hope and chizuk. There are others on that group who are very despondent, prepared to do anything. But the hostages are on the minds of everyone in Israel. And we owe it to them. They can only function with us using koel, using that unity to reach out to them and help them in a spiritual form.
0: Well, Thank you so much, Rabbi Ash. That was, as you promised, a very varied podcast and yeah. uh, all the way from our Heshtadlis that we can do with advocacy, but obviously leaving off with the most important thing that we can do, which is to carry on being united in Tvilla. and certainly Devening for the Hostages immediate release. Thank you again, Rabbi Tetz, for coming on again. And please subscribe so you don't miss another episode. Carry on sending your feedback and your questions to podcast.jne.org.uk. And we'll see you next week.